Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Arvin Hickman and welcome to the PR Weekly, your weekly fix of PR industry news, analysis and gossip. I'm joined by my colleague, John Harrington, editor of PR Week UK. How's it going, John? Good, thank you, Arvin. Really good. It's been a, uh, it's been a busy week, but, uh, but a good one. It has, and, and we had a bit of a break last week, didn't we? Because it was a short week and we couldn't quite get things together. What's happened in the past week for you? Uh, a lot. Um, we are coming towards the end of a lot of our projects. Um, the top 150 coverage has finally ended. So thank you everyone for, for reading that and um, taking part in that. We have 30 under 30 coming up, the profiles we announced who was in it quite recently. So that's exciting. We've had our best places to work announcement. That was last week. Um, so congratulations everyone there. It's been a hectic time and we got PR 360 coming up week after next. So yeah, it's been a, a no no end of things happening and I'm taking a week off the week after next. A, a well-deserved week. I mean, April and May is absolutely crazy at, at PR Week. There's just so many things coming out all the time. Yeah, yeah, it is. But um, but there's been a lot of news as well. So it's, it's not just been our own projects, you know. Uh, we're going to come on to some of this stuff later, but, you know, there's been some big appointments, big news in mergers and acquisitions, um, and there's been company results and all sorts of stuff, as well as the usual kind of um, reputation issues that organisations have been having and quite a lot of politics too. Absolutely, absolutely. And and later on in, in this programme, we're going to have Sonia Khan from Cicero AMO and Emily Wallace from Inflect Partners uh, talking about all of the local election results and the comms around it and what it means for the future. Um, something to look forward to. John... The first thing we want to discuss today is M&As. Now, I read an article last year about how the mergers and acquisitions market should have been pretty hot because you're going to have a lot of um, PR agencies who are struggling, um, those who who you know weren't necessarily um, well run or, or those who were exposed to sectors. 
that, that were going through a really hard time. That happened to a very small degree, but it didn't quite happen to the degree that a lot of people um, expected it to. What what has been sort of your take on, on what's happened since? I, I know you've written this, this really in-depth piece and you spoke to many people about it. Why hasn't M&A's gone through the roof and, 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 and where is it going now? Well, no, uh, you're right. I mean, there's um, I, did, I did write this article where um, I talk about this kind of flurry of recent activity. I mean, just this week we had Clarity uh, acquiring a creative SEO paid and analytics agency called Three White Hats and um, Headland, you know, the fast growing uh, corporate and public affairs consultancy getting minority investment from LDC, uh, which is Lloyds Bank's private equity arm. And there have been more in recent weeks. I mean, my take on it is we're, we're basically seeing a return to something like familiarity with M&A, albeit uh, as with a lot of things around uh, this, this COVID era at an accelerated rate. I mean, I think the really important point here is we're not seeing fire sales. Um, we're not seeing the sort of quick uh, sales by agencies that are desperate to salvage something from from their businesses. This really didn't materialise, as you say, uh, in any in any uh, great extent last year. It may have been that it was furlough helped stave off some things, but you know there was a clear recovery generally in the in the PR industry. Uh, towards the middle part and certainly the uh, back end of 2020, and that's continued into 2021. Do, do you think that um, this is actually quite a positive story? I mean, if we're thinking about what was predicted, um, it was fire sales. We got a few agencies collapse that, that we reported on, but actually nowhere near the volume that maybe ourselves, but, but also maybe some industry leaders and insiders would have predicted. Do, do you think in a way that... Um, it's kind of a positive story for the, the business model of, of a PR and comms agency. I do think it is that. I mean, what we found, we've reported multiple times that effectively for a lot of agencies, the taps were turned off in Q2. I mean, that really was a disastrous quarter. But for a lot of the services that PR agencies were providing were in um, great demand over that period, particularly corporate uh, crisis, uh, public affairs, and also things like healthcare. And uh, you could also include in that things like tech with the sort of switch to kind of people working from home and technology based entertainment and commerce and so on being so much more important. And then we were seeing a return to a bit of um, positivity as the economy opened up in the summer. And of course, there were difficulties towards the end of last year. But towards the start of this year, there was a sense that clients were getting their act together, getting their plans together, getting their budgets budget sorted. And we were seeing uh, a return to growth for a lot of agencies. I think one of the things about a lot of the, the uh, agencies that have been sold recently is that those agencies have been performing well. You know, if you look at someone like, um, you mentioned Publicis. I mean, Publicis' uh, most recent acquisition was Taylor Herring. Mm. Taylor Herring grew 13% last year. Um, and that's an agency that's had you know a great reputation for its consumer PR campaigns for several years. Um, they also bought Octopus, which is very high-performing um, B2B agency that tops the top 150 B2B um, table for the last two years. So, uh, and then if you look at Headland as well, as I mentioned, they had an investment from LDC. They, they grew 20% last year. So uh, this is, and an, an in, in the case of Headland, you know, LDC took a minority investment in that. Um, the man- management uh, maintains its controlling state. So these are not fire sales. I think what's happening is buyers are seeing this as an opportunity to add to their assets. The background here is the huge amount of optimism in the UK uh, PR industry at the moment. As our, our Top 150 research found that almost all agencies that answered the question said they were either uh, moderately or very confident about um, the strength of trading in 2021. 
we're seeing that big holding groups and well-funded private agencies are eyeing opportunities to bring in skills uh, and brands to make themselves more attractive for clients and make the most of these opportunities. An important, and this I go back to that point about we're seeing a familiar trend because this was happening before um, the pandemic. I think there's been a bit of a myth that listed holding companies, the big Marcoms groups have given up on M&A around PR in recent years, um, that it was all about private equity. And I think that there's an element of truth in this in that private equity has made the biggest acquisitions. You think of Taneo, Huntsworth and Instinctive, and they've all had new private equity backers in the last couple of years. Um, but we've also seen that holding companies would invest if it meant improving their existing offer. So Havas buying Cicero, the uh, public affairs specialist, and uh, Weber Shanwick buying uh, digital agencies, that lot and flip side. So this this all happened before the pandemic. So we're seeing kind of a return to this trend. I, I think it's a really interesting point. And, and, and one thing I would add to that, if private equity is eyeing out this part of Marcoms, there's a reason for it. It's because they, they think it's profitable. They, they think they can turn it around, make a margin and move on. So in a way, it, it kind of underlines why internally some of these big holding groups would be eyeing these things out. Because let's be honest, um, PR and comms agencies have done much better than other parts of their groups. Yes, that's 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 absolutely right. I mean, um, there was a huge... Um, disparity in performance of PR agencies in um, that we found in the top 150 research. And as I've, I've spoken about before, it was very, it's quite difficult actually to say what normal was last year. So we've seen a lot of individual agencies perform pretty well. And even those that didn't perform that well, a lot of them performed a lot better um, towards the back end of last year and are performing better this year. So I almost think the performance last year needs to be seen in the context that it was a blip, you know, and it was a very obvious blip caused by a very obvious horrendous thing. But you're exactly right. I mean, productivity's interest has not diminished. We saw this huge amount of interest before the pandemic and we're seeing it now. So we've got Headland, also Finn Partners, um, which made an acquisition um, in April. Uh, that's backed by Stagwell, a private equity firm. And indeed, Blue Focus International, um, which includes We Are Social and Citizen Relations. It's had a new majority uh, investment owner in the form of um, two private equity groups, CVC Capital and CDPQ. So, as I say, it's familiar. Private equity is interested in this space. It has been for a long time. It's still interested in this space, particularly if you've got assets that have been shown to be performing strongly. So we should all be encouraged by this. People who are interested in this sector because it's a sector to be interested in. They're not interested in it for asset stripping. They're interested in it for asset growing and asset enhancing. So I do think that this is the, the industry should be very positive about about all of this. And I, as a, you know, as a kind of, as a journalist, I'm always looking for, you know, what's, what's the downside? And of course there will be downsides. I mean, not all of these things are going to work. And a lot of agencies are still finding things difficult, but I certainly think that um, this, uh, these trends recently, as one, as one um, person um, mentioned to me, we've gone from a, uh, a situation where it was about the, um, the M of the M&A and it's gone to the A of the M&A. Um, so you think last year, um, WPP's Finsbury, Glover, Herring, and the most obvious example, you know, of a, of a merger of some really big global giants. And you're seeing other examples of that. This year, it's been about acquisitions. It's, it's been about uh, agencies buying uh, in specialisms to make them uh, better, uh, make them more effective uh, in terms of what clients need. And it's been about private equity looking at where the opportunities are to get a good return on investment. So, yeah, I think we I think we should look at this in a uh, in, in an upbeat way. And it was good to talk to. I should probably, give, probably mention Joe Hine of SI Partners and Andrew Block um, of a PCB 
partners and formerly of Frank, who um, I spoke to or we spoke to about this recently for the, for this analysis. But yeah, I, I think things are familiar in a good way. What what is their take in terms of optimism in terms of how busy they are? Well, I mean, they they say that it's um, almost unprecedented levels of uh, activity at the moment um, because there's a real sense that private equity are of the view that communications is a good a good add on and it's it's a good it's a good investment um, and there's a sense that uh, management companies as well uh, are looking at strategic communications companies and that the offers that the the opportunities are there across. A variety of different sectors you know uh b2b is seen as a as one that, that's been highlighted and octopus is one of the biggest b2b agencies um and there's been other b2b acquisitions um hotwise acquisition recently was a b2b agency you know there's there, there's a lot of a lot of activity and as i say it's it's coming from a, a position of strength i think from from the agencies it all sounds very positive let's talk about something else i mean earlier this week um I, I, I had a bit of research um, presented to me from Perspectus. Um, thank you very much, Ellie Glasson. Uh, basically, they polled 120 journalists um, about what their experience was of PR during the pandemic. Um, it's something that, that people like you and me are very familiar with and, and can really relate to. Um, some of, some of the, the key findings was that, you know, at least half are only looking for relevant content, um, don't bother contacting me if you don't know me. If I don't respond to you, it's because I'm too busy. I don't want to cover your story. Those sorts of sentiments. But, and, and this is the big but, which, which probably got left off um, some, some of the tweets that, that happened um, afterwards. When PR is really good, it's really good. It's really valuable. And stretch journalists really value it. Now, the background and, and context of this is that, you know, and, and you know, let, let's 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 be honest here. Newsrooms have shrunk over, over the pandemic. Um, media companies have gotten smaller. Um, even in PR Week, we lost a reporter. He was made redundant. Thankfully, he's moved to uh, third sector, which is a, a sister publication. But but the point is, journalists have less time to deal with PR. And I, I thought this was a really interesting bit of research in terms of getting the sentiment. It doesn't sound like it's it's really exposing things that previously, you know, we didn't know, but the urgency feels a bit higher. What was your take on it, John? You know, I'll um I'll stand up for the PR industry um at, at, at every turn, and I certainly think that I don't really understand why journalists would say they won't take calls or pictures from someone they don't know. I mean, that that just that makes no sense to me, and I know that journalists can be grumpy and difficult to deal with a lot of the time I you know dare say I can fall into that category on occasion if I've not had enough caffeine or uh, hadn't slept well enough but you know I, I do think that uh, I do urge PR professionals to read this and take the message of this report seriously I mean I've seen some comments online saying things like it only takes a second to say no thanks um I don't think I don't think the PRs who say this have ever worked as a journalist um when, when people say you know it, it takes half a second to say no thank you that half a second times how many emails we get every day of the week ends up completely occupying your mind and and you can't work as a journalist if you that you can't and there is there is also the point that it's often it's not just a simple thanks but no thanks often what happens is they'll say oh could you tell me why could you give me some feedback should i go to someone else um should i do this with it so then you know if you times that by 50 or 100 every day 
Um, I mean, I, I just, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a um, bit of an idea, you know, from, from my point of view, and I'm not saying this to be kind of woe is me, um, is my life difficult? You know, I like my job and I like the fact I'm busy, I'm involved in lots of things, but you know, at certain parts, points of the last couple of months, I've worked on 20 different projects at one time. Um, and this doesn't include admin issues like, you know, HR, IT goes wrong, employee issues, you know, multiple internal meetings about various things, chasing photos. You know, this takes a huge amount of time and it's, it is mentally draining. And the idea that if you might spend, let's say, 10, 11, 12 hours a day on all of this and you're following up all of those emails around these things, at that point, you would look through those 50 to 100 press releases or other unrelated emails you get, cold pitches. The idea that you would then respond to all of those at that point it's not realistic. And I would really like it if I had enough time to do that. But I don't. And I'm not saying this to be um, the sort of, you know, arrogant, aren't I important journalist. I'm just saying this is the way it is. We don't have the resources that, that we used to have. We're involved in so many more things. And um, being a journalist now is not really what it was um, certainly five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, we are involved in so many, so many different aspects of, uh, of media. It's a really good point, John, and, and I want to I, actually. I'm going to invest a bit of my own previous history here. When I started out in journalism in in the very late '90s, early 2000s, you know, you got um, you basically got informed by two things. One was a fax machine. The other was a telephone. Um, email was pretty much very basic back in those days, and and people didn't use it to inform journalists. So you, you go into your newsroom, you have discussion. Um, there'd be like fax papers on, on the table and then you'd be like, you know, stationed out. you got, you got to go and, and see this this press call or, or whatever. You, you, you've got to go and investigate this. In this day and age with email, you know, we're getting bombarded by so many things. And, you know, I, I would probably estimate, and I, I don't know what you estimate is, I would estimate that maybe, you know, 90 to 95% of them are not things that we would write about. And if you actually went to the website and, and, and read what we do, you, you might appreciate the things that we do write about. But I understand that, you know, a, a lot of PR professionals don't have the time to do that and, and it's not fair to expect them to do that. I just think that there is so much waste of effort on, on, on you know, both the PR side and the journalist side because there are so many time pressures on, on both sides to get things out, do things, chase things. I think there has to be a better way of, of doing this. I mean, I think I think we need to look at why this is. I mean, there could be a number of reasons. Firstly, you know, it, it may well be that the client is adamant that this needs to be done. And even if the PR knows exactly what you're describing and knew it in the past, sometimes that can... Um, uh, that can cause a difficult situation where the PR is doing stuff they know isn't going to work, but they just have to do it to tick it off a tick it off a list. And I think that's probably comes back to sort of um, poor client agency relations um, and something that should be looked at. But I, I think this is the, where, where the industry needs to be stronger and, and say, you know what, they're, they're not going to buy it, so, so you're wasting your time. Yeah, I mean, you'd have thought so. That, that it should get it should be at the stage where PRs are there for their strategic advice as much as their ability to do things like send press releases and they should absolutely absolutely part of their the, the benefit of having prs is to know what not to do as well as well as what to do and how to do that i mean i i also think that there is a there, there is a um a real need to emphasize the basics um sometimes i think 
you know, there are some brilliant PRs in this industry. There are some incredibly smart people who know exactly what they're doing. But I also think sometimes there's a danger in any industry of looking at the sort of shiny new thing and ignoring the basics that make the industry tick. And I think one of those things is writing good press releases. And I mean really good press releases that get to the point quickly and are very well targeted. Um, and I, I, I am concerned sometimes that this basic skill is being um, prioritised less than things like digital skills, content creation. All of these things are important, but I think in, I think this, these basic skills are incredibly important. I remember that in, in the top 150 analysis, um, media relations was uh, when ahead of content creation, I think, as the top priority for agencies to invest this year which I think is really important and I think that's really good to see because I don't think that it can ever be under underestimated how important this sort of thing is um you know of course you can get unlucky you could have a great well-targeted press release that that doesn't work because uh, the journalist is too busy or or they didn't see it or for whatever reason and I'm not saying there, there shouldn't ever be follow-ups but I do think that these sort of basic skills need to be um, emphasised over and over again. And I do think that there does need to be understanding from the PR's point of view um, about the pressure journalists are under, as much as there needs to be understanding from journalists about the situation that uh, PR professionals are in. We, we work in, in a relationship. Um, it, it sometimes is awkward, but we, we both need to work together to make it make the best of it and and the best pr journalist relationships are the ones where we know we know the pr person they know us they know what we want they know how we react to things they know the time to call us or the time to email us um and vice versa what's happened over over the years since i started as a journalist is we are have become much more reliant on on, on pr professionals absolutely you know we rely on you guys for great stories for, for contacts and clients we, we we have to work better as a team i think some journalists will just have a kind of knee-jerk um reaction to prs that you know they don't know what they're doing and there's they're fluffy and all of these kind of terrible um stereotypes that are almost always completely incorrect i do urge everyone to um uh, take take that on board and take takes uh, surveys like this seriously I don't assume it's just journalists sort of whinging because <laughs> uh, we are we are under a lot of pressure these days and it is it is important to recognize that we are joined by inflect partners founder and CEO Emily Wallace, and Cicero AMO Associate Director, Sonia Khan. Emily is a former chair of Clapham Town Labour, while Sonia was previously a special advisor to two Conservative chancellors, and she also served as a campaign manager for Number 10 under Prime Minister David Cameron. Thank you both for joining us. Nice to be here. There are some clear trends in the recent elections that happened over the weekend, and one of those being that Conservatives still do well in leave voting areas, which indicates Brexit divisions are still very much in play. But, you know, on the flip side, Labour has done well in some of the major mayor races. You know, we were talking about Liverpool, Manchester and London, to to name a few. Um, However, many are still questioning what Keir Starmer stands for and his vision. And, you know, when these elections happened, there was a backdrop of a successful rollout of the COVID vaccine. So I guess my first question for both of you um, was, what do you make of the election results, given the current situation 
Um, Sonia, I'm going to ask you first and, and then Emily. Um, I thought the results were really uh, interesting for anyone who is very interested in politics, um, not least because everyone expected um, a big bounce for the party and government with the vaccine rollout, but probably not to the extent that we had it. And results like Hartlepool were definitely downplayed by their conservatives. So they felt very touch and go, even if they weren't in the end. And um, people like Andy Street, who win the West Midlands, those seats are always very unpredictable in that they don't have a loyalty to anyone really um and so to see places like sandwell which is you know where i'm from and is the home of um enoch powell's river rivers of blood speech so you know an area that never ever votes conservative to have you know six councillors was just outstanding i think that it does set the next election up to be a great fall for the um, party and government. But I actually think that it's quite exciting for, for Labour who now have the chance to really revitalise um, their policies to come back with something quite sort of revolutionary. That's really interesting you say that because um, a lot of people are sort of um, observing this as some sort of major fail for, for Keir Starmer and his one year in power. But you, you seem to strike a more optimistic note. Well, I, I just think it's a very, very difficult set of local elections because of the times that we're in. Um, and they don't take into account things like fatigue with the party um, in government. We haven't really gotten to look at lots of domestic issues in a great deal of detail because COVID has dominated things like social care um funding for people with disabilities or special needs, um, things that can often make a break a, a local election during normal times. So I think these have set a very, very high bar for the governing party, but probably the next set of local elections might be a fairer reflection of kind of where people are when we see some of the COVID bounce come off. Okay. Emily, what's your take? Well, I, I wish more people inside the Labour Party were as enthusiastic and optimistic as Sonia, because that isn't quite how it's felt over the last week, um, of, as I've, with lots of Labour um, colleagues, sort of di- tried to digest the results. And I think the things that have struck me um, most are the fact that and, and for policy watchers, it's really interesting in the sense that is this really a realignment of British politics? You know, the fact that Labour is doing well in kind of metropolitan liberal areas, not just within London, but, you know, outside of London, in the West Country, um, in Bristol, in Bath, um, you know, do does Labour need to think differently about where its vote lies in the future? And so those are the sorts of conversations that we've been having over the last week. Um I think there's a really another really interesting kind of uh, a comment around incumbency. You know, the fact that um, all, both parties, are the main, well, all parties, the SNP, Labour, and the Tories did really well in areas where they were are in control in Manchester, in Scotland, in um, London, and in Wales. Um, I think that that shows that strong leadership and visible leadership really does translate into into votes. So there are some interesting lessons to be learnt, and I, I'm in the optimistic camp, Sonia, w- with you. But that doesn't that isn't necessarily reflected in all of the conversations that I'm having um, with my Labour colleagues at the moment. Yeah, and we will come to that in a bit. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about the campaigns leading into this. Obviously, you know, it's unprecedented times. It's very difficult to run a campaign when, when you're, you know, the whole country's in lockdown. I know there was there was lots of, you know, door knocking and, and efforts towards the end. Um, uh, Sonia, I, I'm going to ask you to, to have a go at, at the Conservative campaign. And, and Emily, I want you to have... 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Have a crack at the Labour campaign and just give your honest take about how, how effective those were and, and why or why not. Sonia, let's start off with you. Yeah, so I think the um, the conservative campaign always does well because it's able to corral people to go out and campaign and door knock. And um, when you have such a significant sort of bounce from the vaccination going so well, it's probably much easier to bring people together and to get them out than it is, say, if you're in opposition uh, or mm-hmm. you have been in opposition for a while. So I think that definitely helps. And we saw it in the previous years with battle buses. I mean, there were always issues around um, sort of funding and whatever else. But, you know, I grew up in the Conservative Party, so I've grown up doing a lot of these things. And, uh, you know, I saw... Uh, people who were first time voters, people who were, you know, had voted for many, many years coming out. So I think the the conservative campaign is quite good at bringing together kind of all of those people who perhaps often feel slightly ostracized in their local communities because it's not always a cool thing to admit that you're a conservative or it's definitely not the thing that's going to make you very popular where you are. Um, so I think that helps. I think the fact that they use cabinet ministers sparingly also helps. It gave a lot of the local candidates a chance. Um, and I also think a lot of the, especially the 2019 intake of MPs, their PR and comms is great. You know, lots of them have local slogans. They don't always use the national kind of um, infographics or the national slogans. Um, I see them for the black country that say things like for the black country from. So people have really built up um, especially at, um, especially with MPs, a sense that you know they are the local advocates. Um, they are the people who represent their constituents. You know, they're not the Westminster types, and I, I feel that that has come across quite keenly, especially in um, lots of the. I guess they're not new red wall seats now, so I think there there are two factors for me that make kind of the Conservative Party's campaign a success: just their their resource and their people, but also. Um, the I guess the stars are the you know the new 2019ers who know how to use social media, who know how to use media, who present themselves as great local people. You, you made two really interesting points there, Sonia. The first one was how much you believe that um, local MPs are, are the stars of a show. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the the, the media is, is focusing on, on on Boris and and how he's made of Teflon and and how he you know he, he can pretty much do anything and get away with it. But people like him. So, so you reckon actually it's it's not really about that. It's more about local MPs connecting with people. The second point that you made, which was really interesting, are the tactics and the channels and the use of social media. I mean, the Conservatives definitely, um, if you look at the amount of money they spent in the last election, 
um, exceeded labor, but but also you might argue they were more clever about about those tactics as well. What's your view on both of those points? I think it's um, it's a very good one. And um, the general election was a great example where we saw eye-catching infographics that weren't perhaps the most aesthetically pleasing, but they got you talking. I- I'm going to ask you this question. Were they ethical? What What do you mean as in were they ethical? I mean, I mean some, of, some of them were sort of like misinterpreting things like, like for example, they were presenting to be websites they weren't or, or organisations they weren't. I don't think you can apply that to local elections because the thing most people care about is kind of local data, local interest. And I don't think we have that problem um, as much. But I think you can just reach kind of so many uh, people locally in uh, wards that might be difficult, wards that might not answer, you know, your door when you ring and you try to canvas their vote. Quite an effective and probably cheaper way. And I think actually um, we saw in this campaign, Boris wasn't out as much as he has been in previous ones. Uh, And I think that's just a reflection of the fact that uh, people don't always want to hear from national politicians. They want to hear from people who understand their issues, their problems. They know about the local mm-hmm. roads. You yep. know, so seeing these people once or twice doing a stunt, riding, you know, riding a bike, going to visit John Lewis or whatever else, that's not the stuff that lands in the minds of most kind of everyday voters. It's local action, right? Um, in terms, in terms of, I'm really interested in in, in terms of your tactics in in the previous election. What what sort of channel was was the best for you? Was it Facebook? Um, or, you know, where where did you find the most traction in, in terms of getting your message out there for for local local MPs getting trying to get elected? You know, it's so many because uh, there are different audiences, but probably where the most gains have been made is the fact that lots of people are now on Snapchat. We always say Twitter is the preserve of the Westminster elite. So it's where, you know, a lot of people in politics go. But yeah, you know, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, things that are much more visual, snort, you know, short, snappy videos that tell you what you need to know you know it's small things like making sure the subtitling works so people can watch things on the go I think that's where we've seen like a a real set of expansion probably the best person who gets this right is um is Rishi Sunak you know he's really cultivated a brand by bringing kind of one theme to the forefront that's a really really interesting insight um Emily I'm, I'm gonna ask you uh, you know to to assess Labour's campaign as well it sounds like the Conservative Party I mean even if you observe it as a journalist, has been a bit more sophisticated when it comes to using digital channels. How would you assess Labour's campaign and, and, and their tactics? Well, I don't think it really felt like one campaign. And, you know, I, mean, I guess it doesn't always feel like that with local elections. And these were predominantly local elections. So local councillors being elected up and down the country, as, along with um, MSPs and uh, Welsh Assembly members and London Assembly members. So I don't think that Labour's national campaign was actually particularly helpful because we were focusing really at national level on the kind of Tory sleaze. And I'm not sure that that translated much into uh, people voting Labour at at local level. Where we've done well is where we've got good, strong leaders um, running their own campaigns around their own record. um, And that, that then has translated into votes. So, you know, Hartlepool for us, was a a kind of really poor result but it was the only it was the only parliamentary election we had a really short run into it and we weren't i don't think supported by a strong uh, a national campaign i think if there'd been a general election then we would have seen a kind of different result um i'm in london and the london campaign i mean it got off you know it had been delayed a year so you know already 
started campaigning a, kind of a year and a half ago for the, these elections. And there was a really strong, clear message and lots of material coming out. I think we probably are behind on the digital campaign. And what's interesting is, though, we're well, well ahead in terms of younger voters. So we ought to thank you for the tips, Sonia. We ought to we ought to be we ought to be really thinking about how do we really build that that digital campaign and to increase the certainly the people that we get, the younger people and the vote and their and their votes for Labour. I don't think our national campaign really helped and I'm not sure it felt like a campaign. It definitely felt like lots of different campaigns happening around the country and where where Labour were strong and had good you know, good infrastructure, then they maintained that and did well. And where they didn't, then then it, it, it was a, a much more mixed picture. It's an interesting point, um, the fact that you don't feel there, were, there was a, a very strong overriding national campaign. In Hartlepool, though, I mean, you, you had um, your, your MP who resigned um, for, for very questionable reasons. I mean, do, do you think that had a bit of an impact or, or, or do you think it was more just, you know, that part of, of, of England had had enough? And, and they want to change. One of the things I'm, I've learned is I'm a Londoner based in London. And yes, I'm a, a public affairs consultant and follow everything really closely. But I'm absolutely not an expert on what the people of Hartlepool think and wouldn't ever pretend to be. And I think one of the lessons for us as a party is that we really need to, to listen to those people and ask them that question. You know, what is it? You know, we haven't done that very effectively as a party. We've spent more time worrying about what other members of the Labour Party think about the Labour Party leader than we have worried about what the voters of Hartlepool think about the Labour Party leader. And I'd really be interested to have that conversation with those people that voted Tory and think about, um, you know, what were those reasons? I'm, I'm sure the local MP was that you know there was one reason but I'm sure there were lots and lots and lots of others as well I think that's that's what we really need to begin to understand it's certainly been a wake-up call for the Labour Party um, and there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done off the back of it. Uh, the reason why I ask you that Emily because um, one of the things I found really remarkable um, during the elections is some of the responses from people in Hartlepool there's a, a clip on Twitter um, that really expresses this. Have a listen to this. I suppose it's like for Hartlepool and, and the, the likes of Labour, it stems back to your granddad, your dad, and it's passed on to you. You for Labour because we're working class, etc., etc. And now we're getting to a stage where you can sort of think for yourself, we've had enough of Labour. They've just... They've just wrecked it, everything. Wrecked it? Wrecked it, totally. The hospital. Uh, we haven't even got a cell where we can lock someone up on a night. We haven't got a court where we can take them to court. Yeah. What's that all about? We're a big yeah. These aren't Labour problems. These are Conservative problems. Why is it that they're pinning this on Labour? I mean, it's shocking, isn't it, that after 11 years of conservative and coalition government that the people of Hartlepool are blaming the fact that their hospital has been moved and that they don't have cells in their um, town blaming those on Labour because they've always voted Labour. What I would say is that I think that that is a, a failure of communication that um, for whatever reason those people don't associate the kind of austerity programme of 2010 onwards with a Conservative government, they associate that with the fact that they've always voted Labour and, and 
And so there's a huge communications challenge to overcome there. I want to ask Sonia about this as well. Is there something, some master stroke that, that um, the Johnson government has done, or, or, or maybe it was Dominic Cummings, or, or someone who's basically flipped this whole idea of austerity and, and made people think, actually, it's our local MPs who are responsible, not the government? What, what do you think is at play here, Sonia? It's a good question. I think part of the the reason that narrative has probably turned on its head is that um, Boris Johnson is much better at sort of promoting good news um, and probably not focusing as much on bad news. And I found um, that many people who I know who campaigned and canvassed felt that the Labour campaign was very national. So pushing messages mm-hmm. around sleaze and how contracts are appointed, which, you know, are hugely important. But, you know, as Emily said, clearly with the people who voted in Hartlepool, their concerns were very, very local and they weren't yeah. addressed. So I actually don't think it was about burying kind of the austerity message at all. It was just about what the sort of core narrative was that the parties were going to prioritise. Um, and I, I thought it was really interesting that the government didn't trail the Queen's speech a lot more because you can then point to sort of policies that you're going to promote that might help sort of bridge some of the issues with problems around funding for policing or whatever else you could say well actually we're going to have this policy but I think instead they decided to focus it on kind of efforts during COVID and clearly that has landed and you know people were feeling much better about COVID the fact that you know we're coming out of these lockdowns um, the vaccine rollout is going well they're seeing their friends and family a bit more the weather's improving which I think probably played a part or is definitely something you worry about when you run a local campaign. So I actually think that that was a very, very big factor. I heard time and time again that, you know, local Labour councillors were just landing messages that people weren't listening to or didn't care about when they voted. It's a really good point, isn't it, about how, you know, the the different tactics, you know, Labour focusing on on some of these bigger picture national issues, whereas the Conservatives making sure that they're kind of looking after the local issues. I want to ask, um, while we're talking about Labour, in terms of comms, you know, if we're looking at the, at the sort of wash of what's happened in the past week, it appears that Labour has been very busy infighting and the Conservatives haven't really had much to say beyond the referendum in Scotland. I mean, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you this first on now. I mean, what is your take on, on what's going on with, with, with Labour comms post election and Emily I'm sure you've got loads loads to talk about um once Sonia finishes yeah I think it's a real shame that that the focus has been on who's going to get promoted who's not who's been gossiping about whoever else because you really want to take this time to dissect the results and focus your energy on understanding why people who voted for you no longer vote for you and I think the data collection has gotten a lot oh sorry that's probably the wrong word but you know looking at data more utilizing data more is something the conservative party has gotten a lot better about you know creating these profiles of the typical voter and learning how to create a campaign around them and make it targeted and not go for everyone is yep. kind of, you know often what they do after general elections in public affairs we you know we'd have a wash up after you know landing a big piece of cons whereas Labour haven't had the chance to do that because it's so focused on infighting and you know for me there was a real distinction between kind of Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer and one was much more sort of grown up professional and that was sort of harmed by 
what happened after the local election, which was just, you know, a huge amount of briefing that you thought Keir Starmer had under control. Um, or at least, you know, you have the sense that this was someone who could manage the party a bit more. But if that's mm. what it will feel like to a lot of people, the same issues are still there. So if Keir Starmer can't, you know, fix them or manage them, can any Labour leader? Are these issues just too big for one party leader? And actually, is there a structural problem in how Labour works and, and is set up? Emily, what's your response? Because this seems like a really important issue and it's a really important comms issue. It does. I mean, it's sort of where to start. I love the fact that you said that Labour's been infighting for the last week because I'm pretty sure it's been five years. Uh, at least five years. <laughs> That's what it feels like anyway. Um, I mean, I, 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 as I said, I'm an optimist and I kind of feel like this is our rock bottom moment. There are lots of issues around comms over the last week that I think have sort of um, all come together to have, have kind of got us to the point where we where we are now. This was a really difficult. It all started really when the we we went out with a very the, after the Hartlepool uh, result, and the problem we had was that that was the first result that was that was announced of the of the election results, and we then had results coming out over three days. And we got off on a really bad foot in the sense that we had to, def- well, we didn't have to defend, but we had to accept a really poor result first before all the good results came in. And then for some reason, Keir decided to do a reshuffle in the middle of that before the election results had all come through. And so I feel like there are a few kind of error, you know, few issues and errors of judgment there. But where we find ourselves now, sort of a week later, is actually, I, I think, in a better place so from the conversations that I've had with, locally within my within my local Labour Party, um, there's actually quite a bit of consensus around the fact that actually, if we want Labour Party to win, and we're all members of the Labour Party, although it doesn't always feel like that, um, if we want Labour to win, then actually we have to start looking at the electorate, electorate and not be worried about each other. And so I really do hope that the kind of rock bottom moment is now. And from here on, we can begin to build, build back better, um, to coin a phrase. And I don't think that there's any question that that will be with Keir Starmer as leader. Um, so, so it's a kind of positive, optimistic view, really, over what has been a bit of a car crash week in terms of comms. I mean, you say that very optimistically, and I'm sure... That, that that's what you hope, but but let's be honest here, Emily. It's been going on for years. I mean, it's it's also happening in with the Australian Labor Party. It just seems with Labor parties at the moment, um, there's so much factional infighting. Um, there are so many own goals presented to the often conservative opposition parties who gen, tend to be in power. How do you think this gets resolved? I mean, and why why is it when when Labor has fights? The dirty laundry is aired in public, but when the Conservative Party has fights, it's not. I'm not sure I can answer that question. I mean, I think that we're by nature open and transparent as a party. Maybe, maybe that's it. I mean, I think there are some really interesting questions about the future of um, the Labour Party in the UK and whether or not we are seeing some sort of realignment and whether or not we do look at 
um, whether we are a party which can build a broad coalition which includes the voters of Hartlepool alongside the voters of Bristol, or whether we do have to look at, you know, where 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 we can win as a party and start to think, mm-hmm. well, actually, you know, are you know, should we be targeting kind of former Lib Dem areas? Should we be targeting different parts of the country? I mean, I, I don't have the answers to that, but I do think that there is some really interesting discussion that can take place. I I also think that we need to think very carefully, and this is a really strong message that's coming out about what is our offer to the country. And I think, you know, I do not believe that Keir has effectively articulated what the Labour offer to the country currently is, and that 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 is the job that he must do next. And, uh, and, and so, you know, who are we trying to talk to? And what are we trying to say to them? It's kind of a fairly basic kind of thing that you would do with any, any comm strategy. So go back to basics, talk to people about what they, what they want from the Labour Party and work out what your electoral strategy is. Um, so I'm really pleased that they've now appointed Deborah Matteson to be the director of strategy at the party. I think that's a really fantastic appointment and should give some really good insight and help towards that process. But there's a mm-hmm. long, long, long way to go. Sonia, I, I just want to ask you a, a couple of questions. Um, firstly, why are conservatives much better at, at not airing the dirty launch? And secondly, what do you think the priority should be for Boris Johnson's government in, in terms of comms in the months ahead? I mean, on the first one, I don't think that has always been true. And you look back at sort of previous governments and issues like Brexit, which have been divisive and people, uh, you know, have been open about their personal positions. Um, and then you had Johnny Mercer, who was quite unhappy with his ministerial position and was very open about why. Uh, but I think that it's especially uh, with the team who are in place now, they want to be much more kind of grown up. They don't fan the flames. Actually, they take a lot of the hits and you see that with um, the speculation in the mail about Boris's personal finances or his relationship with Carrie. And, you know, they're hugely personal things and they must cut very, very deep. And they he's clearly and the team are clearly resisting the urge to hit back hard. But I think they know that ultimately it's not to their benefits. But perhaps that's where it's kind of a little bit different with with Labour, I mean, I'm, I'm not a Labour expert by any means, but I think for Conservatives, they're probably driven by ruling and winning. And that's the ultimate goal, regardless of mm. anything else. Uh, and so that's probably why some people take a step back. Um, I think on, on priorities now, the big question is just how is the government going to rebuild um, the country post-COVID-19? And what does that vision look like? And I'm not sure I really know what that is in the Queen's speech. There are some you know, really great set of policies within that Um but there's there's no big overarching vision that says, right, our economy will look like this. We're going to be embracing new industries, more sustainable industries. But that means there will have to be some quite tough choices about, you know, what we lose. Um, and I think the discussion about coal was a, a, a really fascinating one. Um, and we haven't really answered tough questions like what does the future of social care look like? It's quite interesting that there's clear division between number 10 and number 11 that existed when I was there that is playing out again on the yeah. right way forward. Um, 
So I, I think to me, it would be, you know, much more macro, talk to people and be transparent about what kind of country you want to lead, what kind of economy, um, probably have some of the discipline of um, the referendum campaigns where they focus on, say, just a, a few core issues rather than so many. There were, you know, 25, was it nearer 30 bills? It was a bit hard to identify what the lead prior or the, what the priority was. And so most broad- broadcasters led on the most contentious bits which were around the union so I think in terms of communications priorities it would be you know to prioritize to open up kind of transparency to maintain efforts to reach kind of groups that the conservatives haven't and to try new things so actually you know having a new approach to digital is really welcome um And I quite like the fact that a lot of um, the set of 2019 intake work really hard in explaining Parliament to people. I think that's a really nice touch and probably one of the reasons why they've managed to break down the perceptions of a Westminster based MP. You know, they talk them through what is a Queen's speech? How does it work? What does an MP do? You know, how does PMQs work? I think those kinds of efforts are rewarded by their their voters. and, And it's good that they have the freedom to do that from the top. Emily, I'll get you on one final question. I know you kind of touched on this before, but what what should the priorities be for Keir Starmer in terms of his comms strategy for the months ahead? I think that Keir needs to really focus on how to present the party to the country and to... And of course we do, and I think that that will, if he's, we start to get traction in terms of um, building a policy platform that will appeal to huge swathes of the country, that will unite the party around him. So the comms message, I think, has to be about a process and a, a vision for how we, the Labour Party, can become a really powerful electoral force for the country and to set a vision for how we can be a party of government once again. And I think that if he gets that right, then the the party will fall into line behind him. I don't really sense any real um, threat to his leadership. Uh, But I do think that he needs to quite quickly start to put in place, uh, give people confidence that he is the man that will be able to uh, lead us through this next stage of the journey. And if he fails to do that, then I think that it will be a really, uh, you know, continue to be a bit of a turbulent time for the party. Do you you think the party needs a bit of a rebrand? Like like in the 1990s? I'm not sure that's necessary. I do think we do need to... I don't think we need a new brand or anything, but I do think we need to decide what we stand for. The party of fairness and equality, uh, but it has to be built on what resonates with with people and what they and and it has to be based on the sort of where we want to the voters that we want to win over and the places that we want to win. So it needs to be based on it's a rebrand based on clear strategy and and target and prioritisation. I mean, I'd really be interested in talking to the Labour people in you know, Labour members in Scotland as well, because I think it's really difficult for Labour to form a government in Westminster without the support of the voters in Scotland. So there needs to be a really big thinking exercise. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Um, Thank you, John, for joining us. Also, thank you, Sonia and Emily and also our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do visit prweek.com forward slash UK to stay up to date with all of our news and analysis. And we'd also love to hear your feedback on the PR Weekly. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we look forward to you listening again. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.